What do you call a bear without teeth? The answer is a gummy bear. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of Starting Sustainability. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth, and today we have the third and final part of our three-part series discussion about the Netflix series Down to Earth with Zac Efron. This ended up being an excellent discussion with our panel. We really got into it, and time kind of got away from us a little bit, so it's a little bit longer than the last two, but that's okay. In order to save time, I'm just going to skip on catching up with Kaylin for this week, and I'll fill you in next week. There are just a couple of things to address about this episode. When we recorded this, it was literally the day right after Mama passed away. So I want to give a big thank you to the Elming family for still participating in this discussion. And also, I had many, many technical difficulties. Zoom kept kicking me off of my own group discussion. This episode, therefore, is heavily edited, and I apologize in advance if you can kind of hear where I had to keep copying and pasting, and you'll kind of hear me, a sentence going, suddenly get cut off, and then you'll hear me say, all right, and now we're back on, because it just randomly stopped recording. <laughs> we had planned for a one-hour recording session, and it took two hours with all of the issues that we kept having. <laughs> so near the end, you're going to hear it where I was pretty much rushing, just trying to get through the discussion questions because by then it was late on a Sunday night and we all had to get up and go to work the next morning and I also wanted to hurry before I got kicked off again. Without any further ado, we're going to jump right on in and here is our group discussion. Hello and welcome to Starting Sustainability, part three of three of the Down to Earth series discussion. Today we have Dawn, Emily, Sarah, and Michael, and we want to give a nice welcome to Sarah and Michael. This is their first time on this discussion, as well as a nice strong welcome to Sarah, because she's the new media marketing manager for Starting Sustainability, and we now have an Instagram account, and so you can follow along with that. So, yay! Woo! Yay! <laughs> so everybody can say hello real quick. Hello! Hi! Hi! <laughs> All right, <laughs> so we'll go ahead and get started. We're gonna start with episode six, which is Puerto Rico. I don't know if anybody has been to Puerto Rico or not. Nope, no, I all right, nope, neither. It's on the list, but I haven't been there yet. <laughs> yeah, oh, and to recap, so Dawn and Emily are in Indiana with me and Sarah and Michael are down in South Florida. They're in West Palm Beach area. So they are close to Puerto Rico, but they haven't yes. seen <laughs> And I used to live in Tampa. So I knew people from Puerto Rico, but I still had not been there. <laughs> <laughs> but episode six started, uh, they recapped, there was Hurricane Irma that hit Puerto Rico a couple years ago, and it was followed by Hurricane Marita, Maria. And so my question for you is, how would you survive a natural disaster? Have you ever thought about that before watching episode six? And what are your plans going forward now that you've seen episode six? Well, me and Michael being from Florida, natural disasters, um, hurricanes are pretty common here. <laughs> um, so pretty much every year, there's usually some sort of hurricane warning. We have been very, very fortunate the past few years, though. Um, a lot of the hurricane threats that we have had has been um, 
They've been false alarms. Yeah, they've been false alar alarms where they seemed like they were going to be really huge, massive hurricanes, and they ended up being not that bad at all. Um, so we've been very fortunate um, in that regard, but hurricane prep here is is really intense. So are you guys set? Like you have solar panels for electricity or do you have a generator? Do you have backup water? What do you guys do to be prepared? Uh, as far as the things that we do to be prepared, a lot of it is planned out in advance, like as far as like where we're going to go, because right now our apartment is right off the intercoastal. So we would be in an evacuation zone basically every single storm. So thankfully, um, my parents live a little bit more in-state and so do her parents. So we're able to go, you know, and uh, stay with them. My parents end up, uh, they have a generator and uh, I'm the one who gets stuck with putting up all the shutters and stuff like that <laughs> on my parents' house. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was in Tampa for four years, but I was there for Hurricane Irma. And that was when it was supposed to be going up the West Coast and last minute it changed directions and went to the East Coast, which is where I was. So then we were in full on panic mode. And what people don't realize, they're calling and telling us saying, leave the state, you have to leave the state. I said, first of all, gas disappeared a week ago when they announced this hurricane was coming. That was yeah. the first thing to disappear was the gas. We happened to be lucky that we just happened to buy a couple cases of water two days before they announced a hurricane was coming. So we did have some water on standby. But then other than that, we had, we had no idea. That was our first time trying to figure out shutters on the rental house. We didn't know whether to store stuff upstairs or downstairs because we were by a river. We weren't right by the ocean, but we were still like six miles from the ocean, which is relatively close. So we didn't know if, what's that big, uh, after the hurricane, when that big wave comes in, what's that called? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Florida, we should know this. Okay, <laughs> I just threw a blank. But when the hurricane comes, like, all the water draws out, Perfect. and then after the hurricane hits, this big wave, gigantic. Storm surge. There we go. What is it? Storm surge. The surge, yes. Then the surge comes in. <laughs> so we're like, okay, well, if the roof flies off, we want stuff downstairs. But if the storm surge comes, we want stuff upstairs. And I was considered a, an emergency personnel, so I could not leave my job because I was at a nursing home and the residents needed to eat. So it was just... It was a total nightmare on our end, but we learned a lot of things like you have to fill the bathtubs full of water because after the surge comes in, even though you might still have running water, it's not safe. That's why yeah, everybody was buying all the bottled water and the gas for the generators. And it was anyways, I left Florida about six weeks after that experience. So we were done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the main things is uh, you got to keep like duplicates of everything, like, you know, extra batteries. You have to have you know, more than one source of, you know, food or water like just as like an extra backup thing. Yeah. But actually, I, I don't remember the name of the storm, but it was, um, I think it was a few years ago, there was a storm where the power did go out and we didn't have a generator. Where it was, so we just kind of, you know, stick through the really hot Florida weather with no air conditioning and we would heat up like ramen under a <laughs> candlelight. <laughs> you, you, you do some, some weird things, but the, the power doesn't really stay off for, for that long. Um, I'd say maybe like one week tops. Yeah, it's always weird. Uh, like every day is like going back 50 years in history with like going one day without power. Oh, okay, well my cell phone, uh, you know, it'll last a day without a charge. Then three, four days later, it's like, 
oh, I was reading books and checking out the stars to figure out what to do tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but kind of circling back to down to earth, though, it's just really sad to see how little help that they got in that situation and how long they went without those resources. Mm-hmm. Because here, um, you know, it does get it does get bad. And we have been very lucky and fortunate that we have had the resources to be able to get through the big bad storms and that we've been able to dodge so many that could have gotten bad. That's what I was going to bring up. The storms hit two years ago. And so you're talking about going without power for a week. Yeah, we can all camp in our house for, for even a week, a few days, preferably, but we could do it a week. They're going on two years later. And that's half of the frustration from the Puerto Rican mayor, that was her frustration is that Puerto Rican is an American territory. Why, why didn't we help? Because if it hits Florida, we can clean up the whole mess within a week or two or, or a little bit longer, depending on how big of a mess it is. But they're sitting there two years later, still having issues. So they are converting their country or trying to, they're talking about different parts of their country and how they're doing the solar panels. And they're, they're trying to get clean it up and be prepared going forward. They'll be set for the next time there's another hurricane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one guy that was, uh, uh, was it Casa del Sol or something like that? Was yeah. It? I mean, whenever you think about having extras of things, like you never really think about also supplying everybody nearby too. That's true. Yeah. You only really prepare enough supplies for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they were fortunate to have someone like him in yeah. that time. Yeah. He definitely carried the weight in their community there. Okay. I was trying to find it in my notes. It was the eco-friendly tourism, and he opened up a five-room bed and breakfast, and he had 30 solar panels for that bed and breakfast, but then that was enough to be able to supply everybody else around him in their community, which was awesome. I caught that the safe haven helped with insulin, like with people who were like having like had to have medications that were like cold, and then they helped, they like had ice there, and then they helped like charge like electricity, stuff like that is what that really helped with during that time. That's such a big thing because I work in a hospital, usually before and after the storm, uh, specifically with my domain and the pharmacy, that's like a huge thing that a lot of people forget. It's like really, really important matters that just break down as soon as that chain is broken because a lot of people end up like missing out on like really important things like their oxygen. Like they just all of a sudden run out of it after, you know, three, four days. You don't even think about the logistics it takes to get life-saving medications and things like that, especially after a storm. One of the other things that I talked about being sustainable on the Puerto Rican island was goats. And I don't think I've ever discussed that on any of my podcast episodes about <laughs> how, how sustainable goats are. <laughs> I don't know. Has anybody ever tried goat? meat or milk or cheese or anything goat related i've had cheese before my cousins actually have a goat farm down the road and growing up i remember having a lot of goat cheese growing up and goat milk it's pretty good is goat milk similar to cow's milk does it taste the same i think it has a lower amount like it's closer to human milk in that sense yeah it is easier Mm -hmm. to digest that i know i know in europe let me start over so goats are considered a very like in terms of red meat they're the more sustainable especially compared to cows but here in america we obviously consume a whole lot of beef and the rest of the world can consumes goat 70 percent of the red meat consumed is goats around the world and goat milk is also the most consumed milk of any animal globally 
goat production, on the other hand, offers a re relatively sustainable alternative to red meats because goats are browsers rather than grazers like cows. They do not tear out the root systems and deplete the soil of nutrients when they are feeding. Additionally, goats require less space than cattle. Thus, you can have more goats on a piece of land than cattle. Yeah. In the future, both Michael and I um, want to have our own kind of like homestead. So not like a huge, massive farm or anything, but we do want to raise animals and, and garden. And goats was one of the animals that we wanted to have on there. But one of the reasons is just cows require so much more land. So that does make sense that goats would be more sustainable because they just don't require as many, as many resources. Yeah. I actually went grocery shopping this weekend and went to three different stores. And while I was shopping, I looked in the meat section just to see if goat was even available. I found lamb, but that would be from a sheep. I haven't found any goat and I don't really know any goat farmers. So I think it's pretty hard to get that going here in America. So I don't know where you guys are planning on getting goats for your sustainable <laughs> land. <laughs> when you go off the grid, I don't know where you're going to go, but it's kind of weird how, how you actually acquire the, the animals. It's kind of, you just have to have certain connections or know who, know who to contact. That's Where'd something that, that we're pig? still oh, learning. God, don't worry about it. I know we've got pigs. <laughs> you got a pig guy, a chicken guy, goats we got to work on. <laughs> yeah, but hobby farms are actually really, really common here in Florida. Goats, I'm not too sure about though. Oh, the other thing that they talked about in episode six that I thought was really cool was how it was the Conservation Conciencia. I don't think I pronounced that correctly. But it was the nonprofit that protects the ecosystems and helps maintain the sustainability of the oceans. It was working with the fishermen. They went through the steps of you got to get the gear for the fishermen after the hurricane because they've lost their gear. You got to clean up the old gear out of the ocean because now you're trapping green life that is just dying there in the gear because it's old and it's at the bottom and nobody's retrieving it. And then connect the fishermen to restaurants and chefs. And they said there's an app for that. It's like Tinder for fish. And I yeah. laughing. Like, that was awesome. <laughs> I was like, really, the app would be called Plenty of Fish, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but then that way, all the money stays in Puerto Rico. And I didn't know this, but nobody else is allowed to fish. It's only local fishermen can fish in Puerto Rican waters. No industries are allowed to fish there which is a, it's a cool concept and it's great for a small country like Puerto Rico. It'd be hard to do that for the U.S. because our population is so high and we only have access to oceans on the coast. I guess we have lakes so you could get some fish there, but the population is too high, but it's not sustainable. But there are groups like that in the U.S., but it's not necessarily for fishermen, but we have it for farmers and farmers markets. I don't know if you guys have ever seen or worked with a group or anything like that. Do you know of any agencies or conservation groups like that in your areas? Unfortunately, I actually don't, which is kind of sad. Um, I know I keep saying because we're in Florida, but it's just um, the Puerto Rico episode is just very prevalent to us because we're also in, in that coastal type same of community. Climate. Yeah, same climate. But it, it, that's actually crazy to think. Um, I mean, there's probably some resources that we don't know about, but when it comes to, to seafood here in Florida, I mean, there's like local fisheries, I suppose, but there's not really that much transparency about um, where your seafood is coming from. Yeah, like we have one place that's nearby us that uh, is like a charter boat company and basically, you know, they'll bring in their catches, but having that ability of having other chefs being able to look and 
check to see exactly like what kind of fish to look for. I mean, that's got to make a huge difference, especially in planning out their menus. Yeah, it is kind of weird to think about of why we have so much access to um, like fish from Alaska, for example, when we're in such a coastal climate, I think that there should be more nonprofits like that in here in Florida. In um, see, when I was living in Seattle, they did, and then also in Alaska, I know that they do that as well. They pretty much only serve fresh fish, like fresh salmon and things like that, because it's like very prevalent in that area. Similar catch of the day, but it would be by local fishermen, because you'd see them come in on the boats and stuff in Seattle. What was that fish market, Pike's Peak? What's that fish Pike's market? Pike's Place. Pike's Place. Yeah, Pike's Place. Fish market. That was, those were fresh caught fish. You could get them that day, and they were caught that morning. Is that where they're like seeing Yep, they throw the fish. Yep, it's really fun. It makes it fun, but it is. They're all locally, and they're, they were caught that day, and it's good fish. I got some of their, like, little ones just to try a couple times, and it was delicious. So the last part for the episode six, Puerto Rico, rebuilding, repairing, and restoring is their main focus before the next hurricane comes. And my point is that we may not have all personally gone through a hurricane, but now, because of coronavirus, we have experienced a pandemic. So are there any lessons that you have learned and what are you going to do going forward? Because there will be another pandemic. Well, what I did for this is I'm pre-made about a week and a half worth of food and I just had it in my freezer. So if I would get sick, I would be okay. And I could just heat it up and eat it. I wouldn't have to actually physically make it. So that was my way of doing that. And then I now have um, a tushy, so I don't um, need toilet paper. Uh, if that happens again, <laughs> I did almost run out and I had to go get some from friends in California that I had made. So <laughs> I did have to go do that. But for future, I'm set with that as well. I even have a travel one. So we're good on those two things. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, with uh, the last storm, one of the, or well, not the storm, but uh, with like the last all out ditch effort to pick up everything in the um, supermarket. Uh, one of the things that we noticed was uh, because we're vegan, so a lot of our, like, all the produce and stuff like that wasn't really affected so much as, like, the meat was. So that was kind of weird. Like, there was a good, like, three or four weeks before anything really affected any of the produce and vegetation. But uh, I feel like that was also because it was farms that are nearby us uh, are going to be constantly replenishing some of that vegetation. And also there's a good amount that doesn't really need refrigeration and things like that. So they didn't really have to worry about throwing out pounds and pounds of food. Thankfully, you don't have to refrigerate a potato or an onion, even other things like tomatoes. They actually taste better out of the fridge. Yeah. You know? so that's one way that we're actually like saving unused electricity would be like, you know, refrigerating things that don't necessarily need to even be refrigerated. So that kind of helped us with our sustainability. Yeah, and luckily, um, a lot of local farms continued operating during the pandemic. So we were, like Michael was saying, we were still able to access a lot of a lot of fresh produce. And I think biggest hits that we really saw was like you were already talking about with like toilet paper, and we don't have a bidet, <laughs> <laughs> um, but a strategy that we that we picked up was um, toilet paper subscription box. 
so we just have our toilet paper <laughs> delivered, so <laughs> delivered to us <laughs> monthly. By doing that, we're also able to be a little bit more selective of the type of toilet paper that we're getting. So we're able to get like more sustainable materials. I know that's not necessarily as sustainable as using a bidet. That's just kind of what we ended up doing during that time. And so we felt very lucky to have been able to even think of that. Okay, so we are back. I just hit record. So we are back. We're going to move on to episode seven, which was London. And they started off with the beehives on the rooftops in New York City. And they reviewed how bees are important to the ecosystem because they pollinate flowering plants and trees, which in turn helps the environment. And that without bees, we won't survive. So what do you guys know about the bee crisis? Actually, it's something that uh, I've had to delve into quite a bit with my microbiology major, because that's one of the things that they kind of use as an example a lot for how genetically modified crops, it's like similar toxins that are found in other plants are being found in the bees and things like that. One of the main genetic, genetic modifications that they're using is they'll basically make a crop tolerant of a certain fungicide or something like that. And then they'll just douse the field in that fungicide because now the plant has a resistance to it. But now the bees are the ones that are picking that up. I forget the exact toxin. There's a certain like halide group or something that really just sticks and stays with bees, kind of like fluorine and stuff like that from uh, Teflon pans and stuff like that. So there's chemical residue that's just stuck on these bees and their life cycle is so much shorter than ours but that we can see it and how it just dramatically affects their population and very quickly at that. Yeah, that's correct. You're right. So there's, there's different, we've slightly touched on GMOs in the past. There's a couple different versions where you're cross-pollinating apples and apples and creating a new type of apple. But then there's the kind where they're genetically modifying the crops, like there's a Roundup gene where they've inserted Roundup into some corn and soybean, at least up here in Indiana, or they've done fungicide and they've done pesticides in there as well. And that's really what's, that's a big chunk of it, but they're not just doing it on crops. They're also doing it on your decorative ornamental plants outside your home. And a lot of parents are attracted to this because that means it's now a bee-free yard and don't have to worry about their little kids getting stung. Anybody with a bee allergy doesn't have to worry about getting stung. But then the flip side of that, now the bee population is severely declining and therefore we're having a lot of issues with our ecosystem. Do you guys remember a few years ago, Cheerios did a big campaign in the US and Canada where they removed Busby, that's the name of their mascot on Cheerios. They took him off and it was just like a white space where the bee used to be on Honey Nut Cheerios. On the box, it says, help bring back the bees. And they had a big campaign where you could buy the box of cereal and there was a code and you could go to their website and enter it in and they would give you a packet of wildflowers for you to plant to help bring the bees back. Did anybody know about that or remember that from a few years ago? No, it sounds I remember like, it being on the box. I didn't know that you could do that with it. So that's cool. I didn't know that. But I remember seeing that on the box, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the bee crisis has been going on for a while. You know what I learned? I've been in this house for two years, which means I've been a part of this HOA for two years, that you will get a fine from our HOA if you have too many dandelions or weeds in your yard. And dandelions are actually very bee friendly. So I had a neighbor who took the fine, but then they put a big sign in their yard that says, proud of my bee friendly yard. And has all these dandelions all over the place. <laughs> That's awesome. There we go. Stick it to the cup. That's great. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's something that um, we're planning on dabbling, uh, potentially dabbling into is either beekeeping for ourselves in, in the future or um, maybe um, contributing to a community garden, helping with beekeeping at a community garden because it is one way that people can really help with the bee population is of course planting, um, you, know, you know, certain types of plants, but also if you're able to, to actually raise your own beehives. I have a friend who um, did that. She bought a couple beehives here in Indiana and she couldn't keep them alive through the winter. So she tried again. And I have a feeling it's because of all of the GMOs and fungicides and all that is probably a bigger factor than what she thought it was. So yeah, good luck to you guys. <laughs> yeah, and you guys actually might be able to speak to it a little more than I can. My personal stance, because I'm like a biochemist by trade, I mean, that's what I'm going to school for, is uh, I kind of came from like this weird science friendly side. So I personally see like uh, GMOs and things like that as something that can really benefit the uh, environmental scape. I wanted to know if you guys also kind of felt that way about GMOs or if it's just kind of only bad in the area that you're in. There are pros and cons to the GMO. Initially, when, it, when GMOs were first getting dabbled into, it was to help the farmer because they would plant like a whole field of corn around here and then you had a drought or you have a heavy flood or you have one disease that comes through and it would knock it all out. And now the farmer did all that work all year round for zero profit. And it really hurt them. So to genetically modify it, to make it tougher, to make it more durable and last and more sustainable, because now we as a nation need that food to live. So it was more reliable that way. But now that was how GMO started off. Now we're, there are different branches of the GMO system, we'll say. And so it gets questionable when you're doing fungicide and Roundup gene versus just making a hardier tomato that won't crush when you're trying to get it to the grocery store shelf. So there's different aspects of it, but I do get what you are saying. It's great to use them, but not abuse that. Mm -hmm. Very well said. So we'll circle back to London. In that episode, they were talking about clear air is not necessarily clean air and that they have a lot of junk in their air because of the fossil fuels from the vehicles. So some of the things that they did, some of the solutions they came up with to help clean up the air over in London that they talked about in the episode was they charged money for cars trying to get into a congested area. And they were so proud that there was a 20% reduction. And then the other one was that they had green roofs and even the green walls. And then they did a little bit on the tree box company where you could get a green wall. So my thoughts on that were the 20% the reduction was helpful, but if you work in a downtown area and you have to get there, and if you don't have public transportation, a good system set up, all it did was just be more, cost, more costly to you and your job. <laughs> so I didn't think that that was a great solution. It helped, but it wasn't a great one, but I did like the green roofs and the tree box company. I'm not even sure exactly where it cut me off. But the point was that I like the tree box idea because anybody with bad knees or bad back can now do that and help garden and help bring stuff in. But were there other solutions other than the three that they discussed that you can think of that would actually help out in a big major city like that? Uh, the, yeah, the plant walls, which I thought were really cool. And I felt like that's something that 
lots of restaurants, anything that had rooftop, I mean, even just walls with the cement. Um, it helped reduce like the heat and everything like that, just like the trees do too. I thought that was something that I really liked and would it be fun to even make your own plant wall at your house? Yeah, and also one of the things that they were talking about was like having like, you know, like mining plants and stuff like that coming off of that wall. Just that phrase, tumbling tomatoes, it just sounded good to hear. <laughs> As far as like uh, agriculture goes, like I think vertical agriculture is something that we could focus on too. And having that stepladder system makes so much more use of the space that we have, especially when, you know, land in cities is so hard to come by. So like that vertical system or like even like an aquaponic system or something like that could definitely, you know, have some use in cities where land is at a premium. Yeah, I mean, just, just watching that part of the episode really inspired me to rethink how I garden because especially that aspect about reducing air conditioning costs because it's reducing the heat in, inside of the buildings. Being in Florida, I was thinking, you know, why am I putting a bunch of plants just, you know, out on my patio when I could be maybe doing something like that and also at the same time be reducing my um, electricity bill. Very true. The next part that they talked about in the episode was the River Thames, how it's one of the cleanest rivers in the world, but it used to be a very nasty, disgusting, polluted river. And they were talking about how single-use plastics take 450 years to break down, and, and it depends on the type of plastic and how thick it is and the conditions for breaking down. But one of the things that I heard, not in this episode, but previously that really zoned in on me was thinking of a plastic fork when you go to get takeout. You'll use it for 15 minutes and then it goes sits in a landfill for 500 years. And that's, mm -hmm. that's true of all the single use plastics. And they're going through the river and there was just rubbish. The garbage was piled up. Now people can't just go and just dump their trash in the river. They're going to get a huge fine. So where is it all coming from? How are they picking up tons, like thousands of pieces of trash every day? They're going out there and collecting it all. So how is it all even getting in there? Just I think from people like probably sitting outside eating like on a bench or something and they like accidentally drop their fork and then it's on the ground, they just leave it. Stuff like that. Even wind, you know, like a storm, something like that could just bring it straight to the water. I think that's an easy way. Yeah. They have like tires and big heavy stuff. So my thought, I don't know for a fact, but right. You said wind, animals, when people put trash out, the animals might come and rip open the trash bag and then it it might not even be right there by the river, but it can get into the storm sewer system that's right there on their street and end up down in the river. I also think just like if you do have a plastic product to just be very careful of accidental littering. So what I mean by that is if you're going to be driving with the windows down, make sure that you don't have like a bunch of receipts or plastic bags or anything in your car because um, it, it can literally just fly out the window and end up in the waterways. And that's, you know, pretty, pretty common um, here. And I mean, that's even happened to me before. And like, yeah, I, I even end up sometimes just holding on to stuff until I can properly, like my hospital got rid of their recycling program and it just irks me to the core. So like now if I bring like a bottle of kombucha or something to work, I'll keep that bottle with me the entire day just so I can bring it home and try to recycle it properly. I will do that too when we're out and about running errands or traveling. I will keep what I can with me and I'll bring it all the way back and my husband will tease me about it. 
<laughs> like, but now I know for a fact it made it to the recycling. So I'm very happy. <laughs> exactly. I think a lot of hospitals actually removed recycling once COVID hit, unfortunately. We've even seen that at the grocery stores. We can't use reusable bags anymore. Mm-hmm. We, we could for a while as long as we did it. But now last week, the signs went up at the door. Reusable bags yeah. are not accepted anymore. Goodness gracious. Something, um, I went to Trader Joe's and they don't let you bring reusable bags. Um, some stores will let you bring reusable bags if you bag it yourself, but they won't let you bring it into the store at all. So I asked them, you know, what can I do if I don't want a paper bag or plastic bag? And they said, um, if I want, they can just put the groceries into the cart and I can have my reusable bags in my backpack. And then once I walk out of the store, then I can just put everything into the reusable bags. Yeah, um, they're still wiping down the cart. So like you can yeah. just have everything loosely in the cart. It sucks, but you know, it's an extra step that it's pretty easy to do. Yeah, we do that. If you go to any big uh, wholesale place like Sam's Club or Costco, it's they don't bag it. You have to take it out. You either have to put it in your own box, your own bags. We shop at Aldi and at Aldi, it's the same thing. You bag it yourself. So that's a good point. You can, even if you don't shop at those specific stores, you can still just put it in the cart and take it out to your car and then bag it at the car. We, we work that hard. And then if you buy groceries online and you go to pick them up, what was that, Kaylin? I think I bought 50 items and I had 30 bags. Yep. So they would put one item in the bag oh and I'm like, I cannot do it this again. So, I mean, it was convenient, but I just was like, I have 30 bags and I bought 50 items. That is crazy. Yeah. I did the pickup only, only twice because, because of coronavirus had just hit. It was like the height of the pandemic. I had a newborn. I was like, I'm not going in the store. I'm not bringing the newborn in the store. Same thing. Over 20 items, 12 bags. I was like, you, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. It made me cringe. <laughs> yep. Oh, the last thing I wanted to point up with episode seven, the London episode, was they had the bamboo bikes. And Dawn, I know you're an avid biker. So what did you think about the bamboo bikes? I didn't see that part. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> oh, they're really cool. Sorry. <laughs> I was so excited about that question. I was like, oh my gosh, Dawn is going to love how cool bamboo bikes. <laughs> they were really cool, I thought. There we go. I was like, man, I thought bikes in generally were sustainable because now you're not using a car. They're usually made of right. metal frame, but now they have a bamboo frame. So they're very lightweight and eco-friendly. Well, I'm excited they're like a bamboo. I'm sorry I missed that, but that's cool. All right, we'll move on to episode eight where they travel back to Peru. There really wasn't a whole lot of super sustainable stuff there. They talked about the different superfoods and plants and bark and the medicinal purposes of them and meditating and kind of just being more self-aware of what's around you, which was, it was neat. It was cool to watch that. I had not heard of any of those. Camu Camu, Cat's Claw, Sangre de Grotto. I have them written down. I'm like, I haven't heard of any of these or tried any of these. I don't know if you guys have or not. But the one thing that I did want to point out, they were talking about the Amazon River. And Zach was like, are there snakes and crocodiles and stuff? What do I need to be worried about? I'm like, no, no, just the piranhas are the only thing you have to worry about. Which, if you ever are lost in the jungle in the Amazon, piranhas do sleep at night. So if you have to cross the river, going at night is the best time because that's going to be the safest. And it's honestly very rare that piranhas even go for humans. They most likely eat fruits, nuts, seeds, and dead animals. Now, if you're bleeding or wounded, then they'll be attracted to the blood. But it's Hollywood who has made the piranhas way more vicious and scary than they actually are. So your chances of a piranha attack are... (laughs) pretty slim. So you don't have to worry about that. Not really sustainability related, but just good to know if you're ever lost in the jungle, 
you just follow the water because that's usually what leads you to civilization. That's how you get unlost and get yourself found again. All right. Keep that my trivial for two facts. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know in case you ever <laughs> pretty. Oh, uh, I just want to mention as far as like what they were talking about with like the medicines and things like that. Because like I said, working in pharmacy is like, that's one of the things that I focus on. And I thought it was really cool that they mentioned that. Because uh, one of the most commonly used antibiotics that we use in our hospital is vancomycin. And it was actually originally derived from mud in Mississippi. There's all sorts of medicines in areas where nobody would really think to look at. Originally, when they said, like, rub dirt in your wounds and stuff like that, like, everybody cringes about it now. But there was an antibacterial property to that. You know, you never really think about it, but that's something to keep in mind with, you know, shrinking back some of the ecological avenues that you have. There's unknown gems amongst some of that forest area, and like there's unknown cures. We don't necessarily know their potential botanical use now, but later on they could reveal themselves. You're right. That is a very important part and why it's so important to protect the rainforest because it has a lot of healing medicinal properties that haven't been discovered yet. It reminds me of, John, what's that movie? Is it The Rainmaker? You know what movie I'm talking about? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Medicine Man. Medicine Man, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he's down at the rainforest and he's trying to like find the cure for cancer. It was, oh, is that movie from the 80s or the 90s? It's, a, it's, it's an older movie. <laughs> <laughs> an oldie but a goodie. <laughs> yeah, yes. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. I don't even know where to tell you to go because I don't even know if it's on Netflix or Hulu or <laughs> Blockbusters are all gone now. So good luck finding it. But, but it is an oldie and a goodie. So we'll wrap up the discussion. One of the things that I noticed is that it's very clear who helped sponsor the making of this docuseries. TripAdvisor <laughs> and Visa. Did you guys notice every single time they did a Zoom in, every time that Zach paid for something with his Visa card? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering um, how many people tried to steal that card number after watching that. <laughs> That's yeah, no, I'm totally Zach <laughs> So now that you've seen most of the episodes, I don't know if everybody's quite seen all of them, but now that you've seen at least a good chunk of them, which country would you like to go visit first and why? I would, I would definitely say Costa Rica. That was my favorite episode. But I, what I really liked about it, I would actually really want to stay at one of those communities because I yes. think, yes, <laughs> just overall, like getting to be a, a part of that lifestyle can teach someone a lot. Like after watching that episode, I actually started looking up one of those eco villages and they had so much valuable information on their website about everything from the foods that they eat to, you know, a typical schedule for them to, um, you know, what plants they actually have in their, in their garden, in their farm. And so I definitely would want to, to go stay there for that reason. How about you, Dawn? You know, it's a toss up, either Costa Rica or Iceland, just because Iceland's beautiful. It's kind of cool to watch them cook in the, um, Man. Gash, yeah, in there, and then to swim in those healing pools, the lagoon. Yeah, yeah, yep. And then, yeah, just uh, everything there was really cool. So that that might be it. One of those. I'm in agreement with Costa Rica. I was like, I want to just go vacation at the commune for a week and eat all that fruit and meditate. And I was like, this sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I might even go to back to school for a day or two. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is there anything that you wish Zach and Darren would have covered more? When they were in, in London, they talked about plant-based diets a little bit, but they focused more on the health side of it. And there is actually a huge environmental discussion going on regarding going plant-based and veganism and far, like farming practices and all of that. So I guess I wish they would have gone a little bit more into the ecological footprint of farms in general. You know, their last episode, they talked about wanting to continue to spread the word about sustainability. So I would like to think that they will continue and do more episodes and maybe dig deeper, even into the United States and different, even different states here in the United States and what we can do. I would like that. They talked a lot about all their countries and how great they are. And some of those things are not applicable here in the U.S. because we're so big, because our population is so high, because the demand is so high. So even though we have sustainable efforts going, it's going to be very, it's going to be a very long time before we're 100% sustainable. But I would love to see them do a U.S.-based couple of episodes, at least, on what we have been doing and what more people can do. Because there are a lot of people who are out there like, yeah, I recycle my water bottles and I use reusable grocery bags. I'm fantastic. And it's like, you are just touching the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more stuff that you could be doing that will make a bigger impact. So that would be wonderful. We could get people to kind of open their eyes here in the U.S. to see what else they can be doing. Yeah. One of the ideas that I had was it would be really cool if they actually had a rotating host for the show. Having a different celebrity each time would maybe also help get more people to watch it because then you're kind of targeting different different communities. That was just an idea that I had and I was like, <laughs> I just want to get that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had Anna Kendrick in for the water episode for maybe five minutes and then she was gone. We never saw her again. I thought she was going to come back later on. But yeah, that would be cool. Getting celebrities involved is great because they are a high influencer and this would be a positive influence for them. Actually, something we just found out, we were watching the Lorax earlier and he's like one of the main roles for one of the animated characters in the Lorax. Yeah, Zac Efron is. I was like, wow, I never really realized how sustainable Zac Efron was. Yeah, he's the voice of Ted in the movie. We just found that out. Yeah. I didn't know. I just now found that out. <laughs> My final question for you guys, how has this series impacted your lifestyle? Have you made any new changes after watching this series? I think you try doing everything you can a little bit more eco-friendly now. Yeah, I got I got a little obsessed <laughs> with um, being sustainable. Um, I mean, it's something I was already passionate about, but it just gave me a lot of new ideas and I just kind of went with it. Like after watching the Costa Rica episode, I went and I bought a banana tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in Florida. You can actually grow a banana tree down there. So that doesn't work here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it, it also just kind of got us to start even just eating healthier, eating a lot more fruit, eating a lot more like fermented foods, just like kind of really having those conversations a lot more. I just think kind of having like something consistently that we were watching every day really just kind of helped keep things moving and keep us inspired. Like those days as a kid watching Captain Planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's my hero. I think just having the daily reminders because I've been listening to those episodes regularly now. So it does, it does keep you in check. Yeah. Well, I know episode two was the France, the water episode. So a lot of people probably changed the way that they consume their water 
And after watching the London episode with the River Thames and the guy said, you know what this is? And it was an itty bitty little piece of plastic straw tubing. And they're trying to guess what it was. And he said, it's the Q-tip base. And I was like, hopefully people just don't buy that and just get the 100% cotton Q-tips and get don't get the ones with the plastic in the middle. It's just something as little of a change as that makes a big impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this goes beyond our scope here in the podcast and the listeners who are listening in. And I know Zach Efron got a lot of people to listen in and watch because he was on Netflix, but I hope that people take it. Those who have seen it, take it, take something from it and pass it on to others and do the rule of three. Like if you can get three people and they get, they each get three people and they each get three people, then sustainability would spread. By the way, that's the same rate that coronavirus was spreading when this first came out. It was about one, (laughs) one person would infect three and they would each infect three and they would each infect three. So if we could be as contagious as the <laughs> we can make mass changes in like six months <laughs> <laughs> are there any final thoughts anything else that you guys want to bring up so um one thing i want to bring up actually regarding the new starting sustainability instagram is where to go to follow that um so to find the instagram you um, just type in starting underscore sustainability perfect thank you so much for setting that up. I really, really appreciate it. I'm excited to go there and check it out. Woo-hoo. I'll have to figure out Instagram now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, everybody. I appreciate everybody hopping on and doing this call. Three separate meetings because I kept losing connection <laughs> with Zoom. <laughs> so I will edit this down and send it out and I'll talk to everybody later and listen in for this episode. Again, I want to say welcome to Sarah, our media marketing manager. And a huge thank you for setting up and running the Instagram account for us. Please check us out and join us and follow us on Instagram for more events. This episode has gone on long enough, so I'm going to end it quickly. I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of their week and continue to stay sustainable. Bye.